Hello and welcome back to Rocket. On today's show, we are sitting down with the brilliant Sam Seaton, who is the CEO at Money Hub Enterprise. Now, in our conversation with Sam, we talk all about what it was like for her growing up and her early journey in the equestrian space. She had an ambition um, which was to qualify for Sydney 2000, and we learn all about this process and what she took away from that. We talk about her goals, we talk about her relationship with goal setting and resilience, her journey with Money Hub MBOs, and much, much more. So grab yourself a coffee and enjoy. So Sam, one thing we're really um, intrigued about. So are you able to talk to us a little bit about your upbringing? Um, and we, we know that you have a love of horses and you're in the equestrian world. And if there's any you know, correlation between that and, and the flip to business, but maybe a little bit about your childhood uh, for our listeners to understand where you came from and uh, what's brought you to where you are today. So my, my childhood, I mean, obviously, I think, obviously, um, I, I believe I had a fantastic childhood which I think is, in, is important for lots of different reasons. Uh, so I'm quite a fan of um, now that I'm older of actually supporting places and organisations that do help children because I really think the foundations for life are, are genuinely made when you're a child. And I was very lucky, I think, to have a dad that was extremely, I guess, if I look back, progressive. You know, so he had, you know, I was the eldest daughter, I had my younger brother, but when I look back, he kind of treated us the same. You, you know, there was no, there was no gender split. Um, I, I kind of explained this, something that came home to me the, the other day is that, so I really liked um, chopping the wood for our um, hot belly stove, you know, for our burnt, wood burning stove. It was just something I really enjoyed doing. And when I think back on that, I was 12 when I used to chop all the wood on my own for our stove. And I, I look now around me at my friends with 12 year olds and I think, you know, would you let your 12-year-old son or daughter alone with an axe, you know, to, to get stuck into the wood pile? And I, I'm not sure I would. I, you know, so I look back at that and I think, mm, so you can see from that, I think, that I was allowed to, I, we were allowed a lot of freedom. We were given a lot of confidence in our abilities and there was a lot of trust. And, and I think actually that's quite important. And they're things that I think you should carry forward to the future in all that you do, not just with your family, but in business is, you know, as you all realise, trust is actually quite important, trusting people to do a job and letting them get on with it and do it in their own way. I'm pretty sure when I did my first efforts with the, um, with the wood, it was not like my dad would have done, right? You know, I'm, I, it's not possible. But it's pretty quick that you master these things. So, yeah, so I think, you know, very, very lucky to have. Um, and, and then genuinely, um, obviously, he also was the big instigator in me ending up doing a degree because I was obsessed with horses in fact no not was I'm still obsessed by horses it's in my DNA it's never leaving me I will be 98 and on the cob hacking around our lanes because you know I just think that that would be a wonderful thing for me to be able to do but but right right at that stage I was incredibly competitive I I, I you know I, I had my my horse and you know genuinely enjoyed eventing which is dressage show jumping and cross country that was my, my thing. And, and I decided that the best thing to do when I left school was to go and ride racehorses for a living because it was the only way you could get paid to ride in Australia, that was. So I thought, and I can continue with my venting. And um, my, my dad said to me, he said, oh, I don't, you know, that's fine if you want to go and ride racehorses for a living. And he said, but um, first of all, you have to get a degree. And he said, no, I don't care if you get a degree in knitting. Like he said, I honestly don't care what you do, but you're getting a degree. He said, because if you hurt yourself riding, you can fall back on whatever you've gone and got a degree in. So he said, but that, that is, that's what you have to do. So, so, you know, it made some sense. And then my uncle was the second intervention because I decided I would be a nurse because all my friends were going to be a nurse. So that sounded like a good idea. Go and get in, in Australia at that time. It was then a degree qualification to, to become a nurse. So that's what I thought I would do. And my uncle is a vet. And he said to me, you would make a very poor nurse. And I am like, what? What, what do you mean a poor nurse? How can you be a poor nurse? I, you know, that's, I, mean, I just thought it was ridiculous. And he said to me, you know, trust me, there are other things that are going to interest you more. And so he took me through the paper as it was in those days with all the jobs advertised in the back, you know, from the beginning to the end. And they start with A and they finish with Z. And, and it wasn't until I got to systems analyst that any of them remotely interested me, you know. So I was working all the way through. And I said to him, what does a systems analyst do? It sounds really interesting. And he said, I have no idea. 
it's something to do with computing. Go and talk to your computing teacher at school, which is what I did. And so then, you know, he was the one that, so that was when I put on my, I, I guess it's, uh, you know, in Australia, you fill out your university entrance, which is, you, know, you have four selections. And mine was, you know, my you know, computer science at university and then nursing, nursing, nursing. So if I hadn't got into my computer science degree, I'd definitely be a nurse. And I personally think he was wrong. I still think I'd have been an okay nurse. But anyway, so that's that's what happened. And I did get into my computer science degree, did that, and then actually never wanted to ride a racehorse for a living. Much, I'm sure, to my dad's huge relief, um, because I'm pretty sure that was his aim. So I thought he went about it quite a clever way, rather than taking me head on and saying, you cannot ride racehorses for a living. So yeah, I guess I grew up a little bit at uni and found other things that were much more interesting. Um, but at the same time, I'd kept riding, never ever gave up my riding. And about two years after I, I finished, I, I went and worked graduate programmer for Telstra, so equivalent for BT. Um, had, a, had a great time as a graduate developer for them. You know, still got friends that are actually travelled all over the world from those, from those days. So lovely to have that. But at the same time, kept riding. And actually two years in, I got um, long-listed for the Sydney 2000 Olympics. So they start to pick the, the kind of squad to prepare you know, about, about six years out, you know, genuinely, they've spotted horses, riders that they think could, could be right. But they said to me, which is the same for everyone, if you want to get shortlisted, you have to have competed internationally. So that doesn't mean that you have to stay, you know, obviously you can, you can go for a year, ride on the international eventing circuit, come back to Australia, and then you kind of tick that box and you can then be the criteria, you'll meet the criteria um, so I had to go to the US or the UK and compete. That was my choice, really. That's where the international eventing circuits are. I mean, the UK is the best, but the US also has quite a good um, uh, circuit. So um, I thought that was ridiculous, genuinely, honestly ridiculous, because, because when you ride at a top level to, to win, you are on the edge. And when you're on the edge, it either goes very well or very bad, which means you're either in the dirt or you kind of win. And I thought traveling halfway around the world to end up, you know, in, a, in the dirt, in the water, in the ditches, just didn't seem to make a lot of sense. And I'd never really thought about it. But I just thought, you know, I love what I do, but I'm not 100% sure that that is sensible. And I think that tells you a little bit about me because I think I am quite practical and I'm quite sensible, like at my core, quite practical person, I think. Um, and one thing I would say is you can't change that. So that, that is something that, you know, you, you've got to kind of, I think, at some point recognise, you know, you have, you have attributes, don't you, that, that kind of make you who you are. And I, I think that's fine. I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think you should, I guess, celebrate who you are a little bit. Absolutely. And go with the flow. Yeah. So, in fact, one, one of my questions was um, what brought you to England? But it sounds like you've just answered, answered that. Um, so it sounds like your, um, your question career brought you to the UK. Um, and actually, Harry, I know that you're, you had some questions about, or you had some ex life experience about that. A little bit. Well, actually, so uh, on the half, she's actually trains racehorses. Um, so she actually is in that career right now. She's actually getting out of that. She went to uh, British Racing School, I think at 16, went through that process and now does that on a day-to-day. -day. But um, she's now realizing the progression in training racehorses is quite limited um, from where she wanted to go. And it was either sort of compete get into that route or the different route and she's now looking at other options but one thing that i really admire about the people that are in that industry is if you fall off the horse you're getting back on if you if a horse stands on your foot you're getting back on. it's it, the the resilience and just getting up and, and cracking on is, is amazing yes i actually think it applies to any sport done at quite a high level i think there is this toughness that you have to have um and and i, I do think it does does you well in life, if you like, which is why I always encourage people to do sport, you know, to, to, to quite a bit, you know, find what it is that you, you kind of quite like. But it does teach you, you know, you, you um, it teaches you about success and failure. Um, it teaches you to, um, so for example, we were talking about this the other day, you know, about success and failure. And it's like, well, you, you can look at it two ways. You can look at things as successful steps. Or you can look at that you're always failing and, and you, you will never get anywhere if you, if you evaluate your, yourself and your life as failing all the time. So one of the things you have to do is you have to build on, on, your, on what's successful. And so I think that is something that sport teaches you because you can, you can, only, um, you can only do that uh, by looking at what you're doing well and do it better 
and strive always to, to achieve more, but don't, but don't kill yourself up or beat yourself up, you know, if you're not there yet. You know, so this, this ability to always aspire to be better, I think, is, is something that sport probably leaves you with. And the, the horse is um, probably there's another element to the horse that I would say is, is wonderful because actually you're working with an animal. And when you work with an animal, you've got to do it together. And I know it's not a team effort with people, but it genuinely is a team effort with your horse. And you can't do it on your own. So it's a partnership. So that's really unique to horse riding. And the other thing that's unique to horse riding is how you compete on the level playing field, male and female. You know, there is no, you know, you know, 100 meter sprint for the women and for the men because it doesn't need to be. And I think that's slightly unusual about our sport as well, that, that I obviously had the privilege of, you know, of being in and, and riding at the very top level. But, but it, I, I just can't underestimate the things that I learned to your point. It's not, and it's not, it's not, just resilience like how to cope with stress so for example when I did my first badminton from the steeplechase into the 10 minute box they have because of the crowds at badminton you know it's like you know it's hundreds of thousands of people so they the two men in bowler hats take you in either side of your horse you know to guide you through and you can imagine you know you've grown up in Australia a, a bowler hat doesn't exist you know it's like they're in the tv you know I mean so then suddenly I've got two men either side of me I'm 26. I've got two men either side of me on these horses. And by the time I got to the 10 minute box, I was sitting in my chair. You get this 10 minute break before you set off again. And my, my knees were knocking together. I was that nervous. Um, I knew, and I thought to myself, I can't ride. I mean, how do you ride when your legs are like jelly? I mean, it's like, this isn't going to work. I'm going to fall off at the first fence. And, um, and it was my husband that said to me, he said, you'll be fine. Because I said to him, look at my legs, like, like they're wobbling. I said, I've never had that happen before. That's nerves. That's that kind of all that pressure of not not the not the sport or the event which you've done a number of times before. It's the atmosphere and the environment. And suddenly I look back at that and think, you see, that's why the Australian team won't pick you unless you've competed internationally. It's not. It's probably not how you absolutely do on that. But it's the fact that you've been exposed to that pressure and that intensity, and you've come through it. You know, you've done it. You've been there. You, you get thrown in again incredible how you cope the second time when you go back it's all that's all kind of like you've banked that so yeah so that's one thing I would take away to your point is that um sport pushes you out of your comfort zone and somehow in business to to succeed and to do well in your career you have to learn how to push yourself out of the comfort zone and I think we do that by choice so that's why you've got to almost find things that will do it to you and, and I can imagine there's lots of discipline re required as well, you know, with horses, whether it's mucking out or grooming. And there, there's so much um, rigor with the discipline. And then it's almost like you're, you're almost disciplined to continue to push yourself. Um, and the example you, you said about your knees knocking together, that's just one area where, where your comfort zone is pushed. But when you, you know, as, you know, when you fall off the horse, you get back on. You're almost, um, to, to get the successes, you've got to go through these different layers of failure. And actually, what one of my mentors in the U.S., um, he was talking about his upbringing and his father would basically ask his children, you know, how many times they'd failed that day. And they would celebrate the failures because the failures all add up to the success, you know, to the successes. And because that's life, isn't it? So I think I guess if you've got this, this, um, this experience where you've got that discipline, you know, you don't, you're taking risks, you know, you're not, you know, you're getting back on your horse, as Harry mentioned. Um, it's kind of a nice analogy. And for those listeners out there that don't have a racehorse or, a, you know, access to that, um, it's finding some rigor of well, finding something that you're passionate about. Um, but it's okay to fail. It's okay to fall off your horse, um, and um, just look at those failures as as actually another step towards success. Because um, I think a lot of people do get hung up on what they what they fail at, um, but they fail to recognise that actually the foundations of success are built on lots of failures. Yeah, and I mean, you've only got to look at, look at how we learn to walk and ride a bike and all the things we do as children. I mean, we wouldn't get very far if the first time we fell off our bike or fell over and grazed our knees when we went running. You know, there's no way we'd all be where we are now. So it's, it is in us, as you just said, to fail and fail often and move on. And so there's, I, I, I mean, I don't know why we get, is it that as we get older, we get more aware of it and more conscious of it? I don't know what happens, but it's a bit of a shame, actually, because you, you almost want to hang on to that that um, resilience of a child, isn't it? Like, you know, yeah. Yeah. And I, th I think in this day and age as well, we have so much um, access to 
all the you know the social media I, I have three teenage girls you know and I'm on a mission to kind of keep them alive keep them safe and keep them healthy um, and there's so much pressure on these young youngsters at the moment and as we actually uh, chatted to Daniel Priestley the other day he's one of my favorite business authors and he was talking about um, there's this statistically irrelevant fact that you know that that beautiful girl or that beautiful boy you know they've got everything but actually to get there, you know, it's, well, number one, it's irrelevant because it's, it's very unlikely. Um, anyway, I'm, I guess I'm lost, lost my train of thought a little bit, but um, we're only seeing the successes, but we're filtering out a lot of the failures that- The algorithms even on Instagram are automatically putting the, the most touched up, the most sort of perfect imagery on when, when the algorithms work. I mean, when you go onto the explore page, they're only showing the best, the most liked, all the top, and then it's the instant comparison. Um, between yourself and those people um so and i think i think it's really interesting some of the stuff you're saying there sam and one thing i wanted to touch on is your thoughts on sort of goal setting because you talk about sort of if you fall off the bike you then if, if we just fell off and just walked away and let and gave up then we wouldn't get anywhere um but on another angle so i guess if you've got a goal and you work and work and work where you have to enjoy the process when you get to that goal then what do you set another goal do you because you've got that big goal you work it's motivating you it's getting you up in the morning and then once you've reached it it's actually oh okay now what so what are your thoughts on i guess goal setting um how has goal setting uh been you in your journey and um yeah just a bit about that would be great so so there's just there's two things i think are really important in this in this part um and it's just i mentioned it before i forget it which is um and it's it's related to what you've all just talked about in terms of social media and perhaps an influence that we didn't have the older ones of us, not obviously Harry, but, you know, uh, as much as what the youngsters have is now, which is that um, I think we've got to somehow find a way not to take things as, as personally as what we do. So that's one of the things that I learned actually at 12. I can still remember it. And it was it was learning to rise. So it was learning to ride. And I kept being told, um, you know, what I was something I was getting wrong. And um, I got very upset because obviously you're trying really hard and you think you're doing a good job and someone's telling you you're not. So it's quite, it's quite tricky. But at the end of this lesson, um, this man said to me, he said, you know, he said, um, you are going to get nowhere fast if you keep taking things so personally. And, and, and so only later on I thought to myself, so what, and what he said to me is he said, you need to accept criticism. He said, it's the only way you'll get better. And he said, it's, we're only, I'm only telling you, you know, what you're doing wrong so you can fix it and be better. He said, I'm not telling it to you to make you feel, you know, unhappy. And, and, and that was one of my lessons in life, if you like, which I still carry today. And I, I wonder if actually that's something that would be great to try and help people, you know, young people, in the world that they're being influenced, to your point, Harry, about, you know, everyone gets stuff like, but actually, um, you know, getting things wrong or being criticised, you know, not to take things so personally would probably help everyone a bit more. So that that's something I thought is worth sharing. And then on the goal setting, I, I have a very, it's quite simple. So to me, um, you you think about what what you can achieve in the very short term, and that's like what I call one step in front of the other. And you just kind of get the job done. So there's that type of goal setting. And then, the, then if you do that, quite often it's you, you, you start to get to a point where you wonder why you can't step up to another level of operation. And that could be in your riding, your sport. It can be in your, your even in how fast you read. I, I mean, it's, all, it's everything you do. If you think about it, there's people that do it better than you. I mean, it doesn't matter what you do. There'll be someone that does it better. And sometimes you think, well, how do they do that better? You know, I mean, what, you know, and you can't just be better. You can't just read a book twice as fast tomorrow as what you do today. But there will be techniques and there'll be things you can do to be better. And some of them are quite boring and tedious. And they're the ones you have to put one step in front of the other. But if you don't do that, you will never get the next step up. So I always think you've got to break it down in. So I want to read a book twice as fast. So what do I have to do to do that? Well. That means I have to do a speed reading course, which is going to be quite tedious for six weeks. And unless I do that, I'm never going to be able to even read a bit faster, let alone twice as fast. And, and then it's about doing the bit, you know, along the way. And if you can get into that mindset, what's really lovely 
is that all of a sudden you'll be reading the book twice as fast and you sit back and think, how did that happen? So I don't even think you have to kind of, just think you have to think, what, where do I want to get to? Then roll it back. What are the steps? And as soon as you start taking those steps, you'll end up on another level of operation and then go, right, so I'm going to make, you know, obviously you don't want to read a big book four times as fast now, but, but what I'm getting at is suddenly you'll have done that. And it's, it's amazing how we work. I'd like to take this moment to introduce to you our sponsor, Flexi, the must-have app to track and manage your subscriptions in one place. So most of us have multiple subscriptions nowadays for things like streaming services, gym memberships and food deliveries. These are great and take the hassle out of buying everyday products that we consume regularly, but it can be hard to keep track of them. That's where Flexi comes in handy, using super secure technology to connect your accounts to see all your subscriptions in a single dashboard, putting you in control of your spending. And what's more, Flexi's subscription marketplace allows you to discover new products you may love, or easy to pause, resume, or cancel in a swipe or two. So give Flexi a try, it's free to download from the App Store, or check out their website at www.flexiapp.uk. That's F-L-E-X-Y app.uk. Back to the podcast. I, I love the idea of starting with the starting with the end in mind and then working back and figuring out the steps because you can break something down that might seem overwhelming, but if you break it down in little chunks, then you're going to be able to you know put a plan together to reach your goal. And but you like you said, you also have to uh, be proactive and um, to find you know more efficient ways of maybe getting something done, uh, whether it's taking a course or you know finding a mentor or, or whatever that, whatever that is. Yeah, and, and, you know, access to information is so much easier now. And the one thing I would say is if, if you find yourself not willing to take those steps, you know, you sometimes question how much you really want the end goal. You know, was it something you just thought might be good? Because I, I think you find those steps along the way quite easy when actually your, your desire to, to read a book twice as fast or ride a horse or whatever it is, is quite strong and and in you you know it's, it's kind of just in you so that's why I said also don't worry if actually you decide you want to read a book twice as fast and find you really don't want to read a book twice as fast like it's not that much interest. move on you know there'll be other things you want to do well there's actually three topics that I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on um maybe I'll just start with one <laughs> so um one is uh let me have a think which one which one is uh I was thinking about the 80 20 rule actually <laughs> Pareto's law it's like What's most important? Um, one one um, theme is the transition from, I don't know whether you would have described yourself as an entrepreneur during your 15-year stint at Towers Watson um, and transitioning into entrepreneurship or the management buyout. Um, you know, what, what was the journey? And then the other piece, obviously, is um, your thoughts on, you know, gender um, inequality in the boardroom. Um, and I think you've touched on some some character traits that you have that, you know, you're, you just put yourself out there. And um, so just your thoughts on that. Because uh, I know that that's an area of um, you're passionate about. Um, and also when we've, just, when we've spoken in the past, you've been very, uh, I would say, you have a very generous um, um, approach and attitude towards helping other entrepreneurs that might be at a different stage to you. And I think that was, that's a really nice quality. Yeah, well, I think it's um, just going back to the start with the first one that you just mentioned. I think it's really important to be kind to, to, to people. I mean, I, I don't think we are kind enough to, to our friends, family. I just think life has got very busy and, um, and even I fall down, you know, on it and I have to pick myself up on it. So I think, you know, genuinely, if you haven't got time for others to help them, I, I think you're missing out on a whole part of life that's amazing. So that that would just be something I think, you know, is, is worth keeping in mind. Uh, and also you always will be too busy. I mean, everyone is always, you see, so if you don't make the time to do these things, then, then, then you know, it's, um, it'll never happen. Uh, and, and then I think the, so the entrepreneur versus the entrepreneur. So yes, I, I don't think I was, so I don't think I was, born like Harry who's already started three businesses you know that you know that I mean is amazing but um I think in life you will have phases of things that interest you or distract you or take you on a journey and, and I just think that that's fine do you, do you know what I mean so you know 
you know, I, I was, um, you know, following, I guess, you know, a, um, a love and a passion with my horses. And, and you, you, have to, you have to accept you can't do everything. So although when you're busy, you've got to make time for people, when you want to achieve something, and I think we'll all know this, if you want to, you know, you know I guess, you know, ride a horse internationally or you want to start a business, I call it being all in. At some point, you've got to go all in. And, and actually, I think sometimes you're not, people in general are not ready to go all in, you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But it's, it doesn't mean that you won't want to go all in at some point in your life. So I, I think even if you're not all in right now listening to this, you know, like you're thinking to yourself, yeah, I'm not, that doesn't mean that in 10 years you won't be sitting there going, oh, I'm all in this now, whatever it is you're doing. So because certain things will come along and for what I, I can't, I can't really say what it is, but suddenly you are all in. It's like the stars line up and then you're all in. And I don't always think you can predict when all those stars will line up. And the only thing that I would say to people is when they do line up, take them. You know, don't, don't be scared to take the, the chances that get kind of come along where they're your opportunity to do that. That's the one thing I would say because there is this saying that you only get, I don't know, three or four or five or a certain number of times when all the stars line up and you can go all in on something. And so I guess I would, I would say I probably had one or two that I didn't see in those early years. And I suspect that's because I didn't come from, I didn't come from a background where um, starting a business from scratch was, was something that, that, you know, I thought I would, I, I should do, do it's, you know, r- rightly or wrongly. And I do believe that's because of my gender. So as much as I had fantastic role models around me as a child, the entrepreneurs were all men. You know, my mum stayed at home and she looked after, in effect, the family in the home. So I think role models are quite important now. Um, I, did, I, did, I didn't have that. I didn't have any, if I look back, I didn't have any role models that were women in positions of business. You know, I didn't have any. So I have a feeling it didn't occur to me for quite a while. It wasn't seeded anywhere in my head even though I was perfectly capable of being an entrepreneur. So I think, you know, that's, that's very important for role models to be around and think that anyone can do anything they want to do. And even though my dad instilled that in me, it still wasn't quite enough. And it came out later, didn't it? So it came out when the MBO from Towers Perrin became an option. And then I kind of haven't looked back since then because then I was able to see another MBO with Money Hub and now, you know, now I, I think I understand business a lot better starting. I wouldn't, wouldn't hesitate to start a business now. It wouldn't worry me at all. And you're fearless too. I mean, because I wonder when the stars do align, you, you wonder, well, you know, I just know that a lot of people will not take that step because of fear or the way that they're conditioned. So I think your comment about you can do anything you want or you said something along those lines. Um, you just need to put yourself out there. And, you know, so what if, I mean, sometimes the... Um, 90% of things that we worry about often never happen. Um, we just convince ourselves that we, we can't do something. So I think it's a really good message for those folks that might, well, that might have an opportunity to kind of take that first step. And it's okay, you know, if, are they going to die? You know, probably not. Um, um, obviously, you wouldn't well, recommend that, but. Um, no, and it's really funny you say that because it is important. So when um, we moved to the UK I had never left Australia I'd never been outside Australia so now I'm picking up a horse flying to the other side of the world and I have no jobs I've left my job I've quit and it was actually really scary so at one point I had to sit myself down and think so what's the worst that can happen from this genuinely so I'm going to quit my job spend a lot of money taking my horse around the world and come back to Australia having achieved absolutely nothing uh, what, what's you know what's the worst thing? And I thought to myself, the worst outcome from all of this is I end up back, back at my in the family home in my old bedroom with nothing, no money, and absolutely nothing. And going and getting you know interviewing and getting another job from my old bedroom and starting again. That that to me was like that's probably that's the worst that can happen. I then I thought, and it's not that bad, is it? I mean, you know, it's not great. I don't really want to back in my, you know, spare, you know, back in the old bedroom at home with no money and no job, having had some money and a good job. Not ideal, but you know, if that's the worst that can happen, it's okay, isn't it? So I think that's the other thing you, you, 
you should sometimes just ask yourself, is the worst that can happen mm-hmm. like that bad? I think that's interesting. And I think also how you've kind of gone about that, I guess it's saying, because what some people will do is they think, oh, that's that's the worst that can happen. I'm not going to do it. And I think what is great is that you've you thought about that, but then you continued and you, and you did you, you assessed it and realized actually it's not that bad. Give it a go anyway. And I think that's a great way of people people need to think is that what is the worst going to happen, but also what could happen if I do go for it, if I do take that star, that alignment, and I actually go for it, and what could I achieve? Um, which I think is, is a great message to the audience. And actually, sorry, I want to jump. One thing you mentioned a couple of times was MBO. Um, now. Just for our listeners, what is an, an MBO? Um, and yeah, what's it all about? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's, it's a, MBO stands for Management Buyout. And it, it is a slightly unusual because most people start businesses like Harry, like, you know, you start a business with a great idea and off you go, you might do it with some friends. So that is a very typical way to start a business. But I, I have been very fortunate to do two MBOs. And, and the reason for that, I think, is because I ended up uh, working for quite a long time before I ended up, in effect, running my own business. So what that meant is when you work, I worked for Towers Perrin, who uh, merged with another company called Watson Wyatt. And at that point, when they merge, when two companies merge, quite often they look at when they merge the two companies, what do they want the strengths of that new business to be? And sometimes they think, you know what, these things are outliers and we probably could sell them off or let them go or, you know, or, or actually finish them, like just wind them up because actually they don't make sense anymore. Uh, for what we want to do as a larger business that we're putting together. And when businesses do that, there are opportunities for management teams in those businesses potentially to buy them. And that happens all the time. Like in the world, as you know, as I sit here speaking, there'll be someone doing a management buyout of a business from a business that, you know, and just what, what it means quite often is when you take that little business out and give it its own airtime and dedication amazing things happen with that business in its own space because sometimes they are square pegs in round holes is what these businesses were. So they were never given, you know, the airtime or the bandwidth, if you like, that they should have been given in the first place. And actually the only way to do it sometimes is actually to to buy them out. And that's why I think um, Richard Branson um, tries every time a business gets beyond between 50 and 100 people, he tries to ring fence it and carve it out and say, right, there's the own business, so that he kind of keeps this kind of uh, innovative, small business uh, mentality in nature. But actually, it's just instead of letting a business grow to 5,000 people, he'll actually have lots of little businesses, you know, that grow. And, and, and I think that's that philosophy is what is why a lot of management buyouts happen. And, and that's what I've been very fortunate to do twice. Now, that, now, so your currently Money Hub is, I think it was, when did you join? It was 2016, was it? 2016 um you've been through an amazing mbo where does the journey go from now what are you looking to do in the next five years you've got any new goals any new things you'd like to achieve what, what what's that all about and it, and it might be good just to talk a little bit about money hub what is money hub for our listeners out there that don't know money hub um and yeah and what what is the i guess the overarching vision so the so the reason i love money hub so much and i feel like i've kind of you know found my way to best place for, for me personally is because obviously all through my um, career with Towers Parent, which is um, financial services um, consultancy and helped manufacture products for you know providers what I learned is that people like us consumers really haven't got much hope of understanding money at, you know like like how it works you know in reality and that's not because we're rubbish or useless or can't understand it. It's, be, it's just because it's, for most people, it's money is a facilitator to do stuff. It's not something they want to particularly understand the ins and outs of. And I always relate this to driving a car. You know, I, I'm, I'm sure I'm perfectly capable of taking an engine apart and putting it back together. I, I think, you know, if I had to do that, I could. Do I have any desire to do that? No, I have no desire to do that. But if you made it, that that's what I had to do to get my license to drive a car, then I know I'd still be on the bus. And, and so that's how it feels a bit like with money, is that everyone's still on the bus, not, not because they, they, they necessarily don't, don't want to or couldn't have had the freedom of driving a car, but just the barrier to getting there is, is just it's too, it's too hard. So I, I think that there's two things that have to happen, uh, is that we make 
we make people's money, make it easier for them to make it go further, work harder for them. So take some of that pain out. So I guess in effect, enable you to drive the car without having to take the engine apart. I mean, actually get you driving the car and give you that freedom without you having to worry about the engine, for example, but um, but do it in a way that it means that you can actually really benefit. So for me, a lot of people go about life and actually as you get older, you get wiser and you understand more about money and you wish you'd known that when you were you know, 18. So if we can, with Money Hub, get people to start earlier and actually make their money go further, work harder and know what's the next best thing to do with their money effortlessly, that would be amazing. So that's like the philosophy of Money Hub. The way we do that is to obviously sell our product, which is a platform, to enterprises, so companies that do that with lots of people. And the, the reason I, I chose to go down that path is because it means that we have commercialized the business quicker. So we have a revenue income, which makes the business sustainable and able to grow a bit easier. And secondly, I think we reach more people. So if you think about all the businesses out there that have customers already that could be better off, it's a quicker way to get millions and millions of people better off. Like, so that's, that's kind of like fundamentally the philosophy. And I guess how we do that is, you know, we have a money management app, which people white label, and it, it connects all your bank accounts, it connects all your investments. So it brings all of your assets and liabilities, your property, and then it runs a machine learning algorithm over the top. So it's like a robot that tries to literally understand what you're doing with your money and gives you insight and gives you tips and nudges about what you personally might want to think about next with your money. And so that's a journey that you can start here, get to here. And actually that, that means that everyone ends, off in, ends up in a better place if they want to be. I'm also a really big fan of choice. So I think if people want to um, live like a champagne lifestyle today and baked beans lifestyle when they're older, I actually have no problem with that. I think there's nothing wrong with that. But I think it would be nice to know that you're going to live champagne now and bake things later. I think you should just know that. Like, and if you would like to live, live maybe not just baked beans later, maybe you prosecco now and, you know, have slightly up go on. But, you know, do you know what I mean? You adjust it. I just want people to be informed. So on your, your enterprise customers, what would be your perfect customer? Well, we have a few, actually. We have um, enterprises that genuinely uh, want, to, want to give the customers that they have what they need. So rather than the old way, which is very t- typical and traditional, where we, we sell products and services and we just try and figure out a match, you know, so, you know, in, traditionally, and I think this is how anything is sold, actually, is we want to sell all of us products and services, but to be honest, we, we probably in the past haven't really cared too much about whether it's the right one for you or whether or not it's the right time for you to have that product or service. We, we need to sell it. So if you stand still long enough, we're going to sell you that product or service, right? So those, those days are gone. You know, what you have to do now is you have to sell products and services to customers that need them at the time they need them. And that's the new model you know, that's, a, that's, that's coming out, but it's very difficult for a lot of enterprises to shift, I think, mindset, DNA, to being something that's very used to selling products and services to being like, well, what, what does Harry need today? And if we don't have a product or service that Harry needs today, do we, do we have a partner that we can go and partner with that can help Harry today? That is a completely different mindset for an enterprise. And they're the ones that are amazing, the ones that have made that mental shift can you comment about how to attract A players and retain them? Um, your, just your experience, um, just building Money Hub. So when you, when you build a company, I, I think of any, or any team, I think you need um, lots of different types of people in the team. So, so this is going to sound terrible, but I don't think of it as building A players. I know that sounds because I think you would end up with a, I think you'll end up, well, I can't really use the England team at the moment, the soccer team, can I? Because they did really well last night, didn't they? So, but traditionally, I think you'll all realise me, me coming from Australia, not knowing anything about soccer or football, as you call it, but just so you know, in Australia, football isn't soccer. So anyway, um, but just so you all know, I mean, you bring amazing talent together, doesn't mean they necessarily win, does it? 
So I think you've, you've got to understand that bringing a team or a company or people together, you need all types of people to make that a winning, winning business or winning team. So I would say it's all about having the right mix of people and not trying to just get one type. And I'm also a little bit, um, when you grow a business from small, it's about the people, not the roles. And then unfortunately, as, as a company grows up, that changes a bit and you've got to try and actually sort out, you know, because you can't have everyone doing everything anymore. So at some point there comes a point when you have to sit down and go, right, actually we need some, you know, kind of segmentation, if you like, so people can focus in on X, Y, and Z. And that's a bit of a shift. And, and that's, always quite, that's always quite a shift for a small business to go through. That's quite hard, but it will have to go through that at some point in its journey. But to start with, if you're starting small, it's all about the people and, and what they can do to help. And do you know half of it is their energy, enthusiasm and willingness to, to get the job done. I like the way you answered that, actually, because I think, uh, yeah, a, a young business needs a lot of generalists that can do lots of different things. And then as you grow, you need that more specialist laser focus. And actually, who are we to, you know, if it's not our area of expertise, it's, you know, it's very subjective, isn't it? Who, you know, I mean, I think of an A player as someone that's awesome um, and really good at what they do and someone that delivers what they say they're going to do. Uh, but I guess everyone has a different perception of what an A player is. And I guess you do need, uh, do you need the B players? Well, perhaps you do, you know, the folks that, uh, want to work nine to five and but they but they're very reliable and they do their job and leave um, but then those other folks that might want to push the boundaries and you know have be a bit more ambitious so I, I think it's probably a we need a mix and it's a team like you said it's a it's a collective team and not necessarily just one individual no and also you've got to remember about the um what what people want so what pe- what what's so my big observation is that to get the best people genuinely um, you will need to accept that um, we we live in a, in a country that I think is very privileged so we don't live in a country where um, you know potentially you you don't know where your next meal is coming from and that's a very different mindset and I think you've got to accept that when you live in a privileged country actually work-life balance is really important flexibility is important actually if you want some of what you would call the a players, I think sometimes you're going to have to be actually quite accommodating. And that doesn't, and so that doesn't mean they're going to be able to work, you know, 24 by seven, like some of you might have to work to get a business off the ground. But if you want that talent or that input, you know, you might have to be very flexible to bring that into your business. And I, and I think that's possibly sometimes where we get a little bit of a mindset, everyone has to be all in 24 by seven. I would say, I, I, I'm not sure that will build the most productive and and best business and you've also got to then not get upset when you know for example I'm all in 24 by 7 and I've got a couple of people who are you know genuinely absolutely 100% all in when they're there but you know they have to go and do x y and z in their life and they've got to do that they've got commitments elsewhere but but for that I don't know six hours that they're there for the day when they can give that six hours they are the best six hours and the best people to be giving that I think there's a slight niche mindset shift that has to change. And, and, and for that reason, I say that's why we will bring more women into the and, and keep them because rightly or wrongly, a lot of women still end up being the main carer, whether it's for children or for parents, you know, elderly parents. It's just, it seems to be what happens. I'm not saying it's always the case and I'm not saying it won't change, but probably in the next few years, it's still got to be acknowledged that that is the case. So if you want some of the brilliance of those people in your business, I think you probably have to be more accommodating than what perhaps a lot of startups are. Mm. No, it's a really interesting point you touched on. And it's also about nurturing these amazing people because they might be in a particular part of their life that they can't dedicate the, you know, even eight hours, you know, it might be they can only do part-time because they have children at home or whatever. Male or it, may, it doesn't matter which gender there are, but I, I think... Um, it, it is a, an exciting time, I think, to be a female in the business world right now because there is a change and this patri- patriarchal society is shifting. And as I mentioned earlier, you know, I have three teenage daughters. I want to raise them to believe they can do anything they put their mind to. Um, and actually, I was a bit horrified last year to, to learn that only 1% of VC money goes to um, female founders. Um, and actually, 10% goes to mixed gender startups. I mean, Flexi is a mixed gender startup. 10% of VC money goes to 
to um, you know mixed gender. So I, I think you know even though it's not the one percent, it's still it's like why does ninety percent go to you know white males? <laughs> you know it's just it's, it's, it seems to be, and and certainly you know if you have diversity, you can solve bigger problems. Surely you know so it's like there's a it's a huge opportunity uh, even for GDP to get more diversity into the the business you know into the workplace. Well, yeah, I mean, I find it quite amusing because I'm like, if I was an investor, I would invest in the mixed or the, or the female only because they, by definition, because of that lack of funding, um, you know, we have to make funding go further and work harder and be more innovative with how you survive as a business. So I, I would argue we, we have to actually work a lot harder to, to make the commercial side of the business, you know, there's more focus on it because you, you can't not because there isn't this never-ending stream of money that just lands on you uh, so ironically I think they've got it you know they're missing out on what I call you know slight you know in effect upside that they, they're not quite seeing it but I think it's actually for the VC world I think it's worse than un, I think it's worse than conscious bias which is you know the different levels um, I, I think it's un, it's truly unconscious bias I, I don't I just don't think they see it yet I mean when it becomes conscious bias, then you can actually influence it, can't you? Because you, you've got an awareness. But at the moment, I really don't think the awareness is there. No, I, yeah, it's a, it's quite, a, yeah, it's really interesting. It's fascinating. It really, it really interests me. And in fact, one of my favorite, in fact, one guy that um, stands out, uh, just, sorry, just came to my mind, a guy called Mohammed Yunus, who's, who founded Jermaine Bank. Um, and he started in the, it started in the 70s uh, when he was an economics professor. And he, he unchained, I think, 45 people um, from loan sharks for $27. And they were literally going to be indebted for life. Um, and um, Jermaine Bank has now grown hugely. Um, and 99%, I think it's 19, well, it was, about, it was over 99% of the microloans that the bank provides are to women because they, they are more uh, responsible with those, they, you know, they make the funds go further and they, you know, they're not going to waste it. So actually, I think just back to the VC conversation, to have that balance I'm not saying that males are reckless. Um, I mean, every it depends on the personality of the person. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female. But to have that balanced um, gender um, and that that diversity is really key. Yeah, you would you would think, wouldn't you? What why this unconscious bias you talked about? What why is it? Why is that? I mean, did you do? I mean, just um, you've got me off on one now. But they, I don't know if the the Philharmonic Orchestra in the in the US they couldn't find any female um, violinists. It's on YouTube. You'll be able to look it up. It's amazing. But um, and they couldn't figure out why, because there are genuinely amazing women violinists. So, so they were like, this is just something wrong with our process. They got consultants in to look at the process. They fixed the process. They put it behind a curtain so that you couldn't see, you know, who the person was. And, and they, still kept, they still kept picking men, you know, for, for, the, for, the, for the orchestra. And they were like, this, this, this is not right. And, you know, anyway, they then um, had another consultant in who, who said that no, you you um you can hear them walk onto the stage, so you know whether it's a male or a female. And they're like, you know, but that shouldn't make a difference. And they're like, yes, but it is. And they were like, no, they were not having it. You know, the judges were like, that is not no way are we picking men because we can hear it's men walking onto the stage. And they're like, I think you are. So anyway, they then carpeted it so you couldn't hear anyone walk onto the stage, and they fixed that. Suddenly, it just changed. So. So that shows the power of unconscious bias, doesn't it? I mean, you know, for all of us in different ways, but, you know, it's very strong. So you've, you've got to go quite extreme measures to get rid of it. And I would argue the VCs well has got a long way to go. <laughs> well, they're going to make it. <laughs> Could you talk about the Open 51 Association, which seems to be connected with uh, the end of the conversation there? Um, yeah, just do you want to kind of promote that a little bit? Yes, yeah, so just a group, of, a group of us and um, for any any women that want to have more airtime, if you like. I mean, it's really genuinely, t- there's two, two, um, two reasons we started it. One, because we just think uh, women are not getting enough airtime, you know, in terms of um, representation at conferences and all sorts. And the feedback you get from the conference organisers is they can't find any women, you know, that are specialists in their area. And it's like, that, that's just not right. So we thought, right, let's make sure we've always got women who are specialists in their area to give to these conference organisers and, and allow them to you know, easily pick. So that was one thing. And the second thing was really about data, which is that we're very worried as we move into more of the algorithms and the bias that that's going to make its way. Well, it already has, but it, because, of, because of how much effort you have to go to to make sure the bias isn't there, um, we really want to try and make make 
a lot more um, uh, awareness about not letting that bias creep in or otherwise, well, you know, I think at the moment, back to your board question, we're 300 years away from having gender equality at the board, let alone ethnic equality, you know, it's just, so 300 years and it's just a bit like, well, in 300 years, all the algorithms will be doing it wrong. So it won't be 300 years, it'll be forever, won't it? So we have to kind of really up our game, you know, in terms of the data and the algorithms. Brilliant. Well, that's probably a good place to end. It's been a pleasure having you, Sam. Um, Thank you very much. Is there, um, how can we find you? Uh, how can anyone find you or Money Hub? Um, any, any URLs or anything that you'd like to point our listeners to? Uh, so I, I am on LinkedIn. Um, I'm going to put my hand up and say that um, I am not a big, I'm not a big um, social media user. I mean, I just, um, just something that's never, never quite, um, you know, what is it? made it onto my what is it fetish or radar or whatever radar, it was. Radar, yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh but LinkedIn also just uh, by all means email me I mean you know sam.seaton at moneyhub.com I mean I'm I am genuinely very interested in helping people and I have no problem finding time to do that wonderful and last last bit of advice that you would leave our listeners uh, be brave you know be you know going back to that challenge bit it, it, when in doubt be brave and uh, we, we we have a saying in the horse world which you know you know you can go and buy these online but you know put your brave pants on and literally our brave pants have got brave pants you know on, on our knickers you know literally when you're feeling a bit worried just go and get your brave pants put them on and off you go amazing fantastic brilliant well yeah thank you so much it's been it's been great to have you on the show thank you sam yeah, that's brilliant enjoyed it Thank you for listening to today's episode of RocketBot. If you want to be kept up to date with all the latest guests we've got coming on the show, all of our latest conversations, the best way to do that is to follow us on social media. And that's on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and it's at WeAreRocketPod. Of course, thank you to our awesome sponsor, Flexi, who is the mecca for all your subscriptions. They've got an amazing array of subscriptions for you to discover from food to drink, beauty and grooming, health and fitness, lifestyle, gifts, and much, much more. Thank you as always. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and we'll see you next time.